0: Welcome to Casting Hope, the sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in, wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at, and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I want to invite you, though, to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, or if you have access to to one on your phone, to the letter of James. We are walking through this letter as a church, verse by verse, section by section. And it's sort of fitting that we're doing this. We're kind of doing this on purpose, if we're honest, uh, because the Jesus we encounter in the letter of James is surprising, surprising to us, even to the most committed disciple of Jesus. So for instance, just as a point of example, in verse 27 of chapter 1, We see that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, according to James, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one unstained from the world. So so James shows us right away a surprising Jesus, to us at least. Jesus is concerned about our moral purity, but he is also concerned... About our commitment to the marginalized. And I believe this vision, this letter, will in other words, be foundational to our vision. In other words, give me a church that is shaped by James. And our friends and neighbors will have a surprising encounter with hope. The Jesus and James is not like the Jesus I think many of our friends and colleagues are seeing. James, let's remind ourselves, was the half-brother of Jesus, mothered by Mary, became a pastor in Jerusalem shortly after a life of rejecting Jesus, his brother. It took the resurrection of his brother to change his heart, and even though he was headquartered in Jerusalem, we see in verse 1 of his letter that his church was scattered by religious persecution. He could not preach to them on Sunday, but he could send them a letter or a sermon letter. And that's what we have in the letter of James. We could call it the Sermon of James and be accurate. And like many good sermons, uh, this sermon probably has three big points. Trials, wisdom, and wealth. James introduces trials for us in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, which we looked at two weeks ago. Wisdom, which we looked at last week in verses 5 through 8. And today he introduces the topic of wealth in verses 9 through 11. So let me read the text. I encourage you to follow along as I read aloud. And then we'll pray and dig in. This is God's Word. Let the lowly brother and sister boast in their exaltation. And let the rich. In his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So, Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are a rock. You are our Redeemer. And Holy Spirit, we desperately need you. We need you to open our hearts so that we wouldn't just learn information, but that we would see Jesus and worship Him by the time this is over. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the other day, I was talking with a friend who was helping me do some yard work. And there was a point in our conversation, and just think to yourselves if you've had this experience where the cost of something came up. And I don't know if you can relate to this moment, I'll call it the conversation no-fly zone. (laughs) It's when someone says, do you mind me asking how much, fill in the blank. I don't think I minded at the time, but I had to think about it. Do I mind? Do I mind telling them how much this was? Because sometimes I do, and I, I just wonder why that is. It's amazing to me how we tiptoe around the topic of money in our conversations. We don't like to talk about money. It makes us uncomfortable for probably all kinds of reasons. In fact, if I were playing Family Feud, which is sort of a personal dream of mine, uh, and the subject was things that we are not allowed to talk about, I would hit my buzzer and I would say, Money. And I would probably have a debate really quickly in my brain should I say God or money? God or money. Because I would probably think they're one and two on the family feed board. You know, I don't have a study to prove this, but I think if, if we were asked what are the two taboo subjects in conversation, my hunch would be money and God. Maybe we feel as if our finances and our spirituality are private and personal. So we don't talk about it with others. Maybe it's because both topics can be a source of pain or pride or shame or all kinds of feelings. And yet this morning, (laughs) we're going to talk about both. Money and God. At the same time. Fun times. And here's why. The Apostle James insists. That's why. He doesn't share our taboo. For James, money is a key aspect of our life with God. Remember, for James, wisdom, which we just heard about just in the verse above, wisdom is way more deep than just making complicated decisions. For James, wisdom is a life that looks more and more and more like Jesus, our true and perfect wisdom. James, wisdom is a catch-all word for love of God and love of neighbor. And so for James, the more we move towards likeness in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, the wiser we become. Which means if we want to be wise, we need to talk about God in money. Probably all the time. But that's not the only reason that James brings it up just because he got done talking about wisdom. This isn't a hypothetical issue for the Apostle James. The folks he was pastoring were up against profound material poverty. And what ancient scholars have called socioeconomic injustice. We know from the book of Acts, for instance, if you were to look at Acts 11, verse 27 through 30, You would see that at the time of James pastoring in this area, there was a terrible famine, which in an agrarian culture is devastating, especially if you were not ruling class and uniquely devastating. If you were a new Jesus follower, they were getting no favors from the powers that be. It might actually help to compare James's church to the underground Christians in Afghanistan today. So for James and his community, they don't really have the privilege to push aside the topics of God and money. When James is talking about trials in verses 2 through 4, this was their trial. Material poverty, socioeconomic injustice. Maybe you know about Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. They were all basically living at the bottom of the track. And this probably brought up all kinds of questions about the goodness of God, their decision to follow Jesus. So guess what? James, the pastor, makes sure to include this in his story. Because he's a good pastor. What's interesting, though, is that James doesn't just speak to the materially poor in his church. There's some debate, actually, whether there were any materially wealthy Christians in his church, but I think there were. So as we walk through James, we're going to see this dynamic play out. But chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, indicates that there were materially wealthy Christians in their midst and in their congregations. And I think this morning, actually, James talks to them as well. Which means he talks to us. Largely. Maybe some of you don't feel wealthy. But by global standards we are. And so we too need James's wisdom. This morning. We don't want to talk about God and money. But we need to. We especially need to. And by God's grace. The apostle James breaks the ice. What does he say? Well. Students of ancient history point out that James is very unique on his view of wealth. Very unique. He does not conform to any of the other thinkers in his day on this topic. One scholar says, James's attitude on wealth, quote, is not that which is current in the world, either the world James knew or ours. I think we forget this the Apostle Paul says do not be conformed to the world James says as we'll encounter don't be friends with the world I think they're saying the same exact thing with different analogies Christianity following Jesus in other words means you are a non-conformist that's what it means You are a non-conformist, which means we will look at wealth in a non-conforming way to the rest of the world. And this passage, I think, shows us three ways we will look at wealth and hold wealth in countercultural ways. First, we will look at wealth upside down. Second, we will look at wealth in a way that is beyond it. So we will look beyond wealth. And third, we will look above wealth. I want to explore what I mean by each of these Through the letter of James. And first, this we look at wealth upside down. Upside down. The world looks at wealth one way, and as Jesus' followers, we turn upside down that vision in Jesus' name. So look again at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What is James doing? He is turning the world's view of wealth upside down. The world, in other words, connects the materially poor with humiliation. And the materially wealthy with exaltation. That's how the world views wealth. And understand, in the New Testament, there is an honor, shame, cultural dynamic at play. So in James' day, wealth was connected to what? Honor. Honor. And material poverty was connected to what? Shame. But Jesus, in James after him, turns this honor-shame code upside down in this verse. How so? Well, by encouraging the materially poor and by warning the materially wealthy. So first, he encourages the poor, and he does this in, in three ways. First, with the word adelphos. Which we see translated as brothers. Or as we talked about our first Sunday. Brothers and sisters. This is loaded. We cannot skip over this. Because what James is doing is reminding them of their new family. This word Adelphos means that you were in God's family. With Jesus as your older brother. Which meant that you were connected to him. Which meant, and this is so key. His inheritance is now Your inheritance. James encourages the materially poor with this. He also uses the word boast. Now this is not a sinful boasting. Which is self-centered always. But a godly boasting. Which is God-centered. When we boast about what God has done. When we boast about what Jesus has done. And James says regardless of your circumstances. You always, always Will have a boast in Jesus. And this erases shame. And then the third word he uses here is exaltation or exaltation. Paul actually, Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually uses the same word to describe the ascended Jesus in all of his glory. And James here is saying that in Christ we have the highest honor, despite financial status. There's no financial caste. In Christ. The poor are united to Jesus' exaltation. Now, these three words are an encouragement. Is James by encouraging uh, the materially poor in his congregation encouraging them to stay poor? I don't think so. And I don't think he's saying their poverty saves them either. But what he is doing is flipping the world's script. He is turning their the world's values upside down. The other way that he does this is by warning the wealthy in his midst. And so take a look again at verse 9 into verse 10, 11. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. His flower falls and his beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst. Of his pursuits. Now, in verse 10, you should probably supply two words from what preceded it, from context brother and boast. So let me just read verse 10 with these two words supplied from context. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich brother boast in his humiliation. What this means is that James is addressing wealthy Jesus followers in the early church. And giving them a parallel command. But instead of encouraging them, he warns them. He he does not say, now you with wealth, good for you. You must be obeying God really well. No, he warns them. And he does this in three ways, with the same word, boast. Again, these wealthy believers were told by culture that they had inherent honor because of their financial status, that they were above others. But James says, don't you dare boast in your status or in your wealth. Boast instead in what? In humiliation, in your humiliation, not your worldly status, but something else. And what is that? It's the second word he uses as a warning. Humiliation. This is parallel to exaltation. And like that word, and this is important, so, so hang on to this. This too refers to our union with Christ. Being united to Jesus, in other words, works both ways. His exaltation and his humiliation. In other words, our union with Jesus exalts us to be sure, but it also humbles us, doesn't it? We are, not, we, we are united to the one who had all, but did what? Gave it away. Who did not leverage his divinity for himself, but became a servant and died on the cross for the sake of others. The exaltation of Jesus, in other words, has pastoral power to the poor who are united in Jesus. The humiliation of Jesus has pastoral power to the rich who are united in Jesus. It tells them, use your wealth like Jesus did. Boast in humiliation, says James. And then the third word or image he gives as a warning is that of the Palestinian flower. See, Jesus uh, often used imagery around him. James does the same thing. And so this was a familial, familiar experience in Palestine. A flower will bloom, and then it'll look beautiful, and then the hot sun rises, and combined with this scorching, scorching sort of wind called the Sirocco, uh, the flowers are literally torched in like that. The flower has its heyday, in other words, and everybody knew it, but it was a short-lived heyday. And that is a warning to all who have wealth, says James. Those who have material wealth, says James, are in danger of, In other words of putting their trust and their weight on wealth if you were with us last week you remember the slalom ski James says don't be double-souled meaning leaning and putting your weight on two skis be single-souled put all your weight on God put all your weight on the Lord Jesus And it's the wealthy, again flowing from this double-souled language, it's the wealthy who are most in danger of putting their weight on the, the illusion of safety and the illusion of status that comes with material wealth. Not to mention the temptation of exploitation that comes with material wealth. And the privilege of looking away. that illusion, and that illusion is short-lived, says the Apostle James. Something levels it out, and James gives us a pretty stark image. It's death. One of my favorite things to do uh, when I listen to music is noticing musical influences sort of echoing within the song that I'm listening to In every song, there are echoes of songs that came before it. And sometimes this is on accident, which is when you see lawsuits, by the way. Um, But sometimes it's on purpose. It's like an homage. Like sampling. And you're supposed to hear the influence. You're supposed to hear. Well, James, I believe, is purposefully... Sampling or echoing a song that came before him in this passage. And I want to read it aloud to you. It's from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, And righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight. Declares the Lord. So James isn't making anything up here. He's standing on the prophets. He's standing on Jeremiah. And he's pointing us to Jesus. Encouraging us. To look at wealth. With a certain perspective. Upside down. I think this means two things for us. If you're wealthy. Make your boast. Christ's costly service. Where is your boast to those who have stuff? Where is your rest? Is it in your stuff? Or is it in the Lord? And then how are you leveraging that? Your influence, your power. Consider the wealth of Jesus and how he used that to serve, to serve you even. And all of our misuses of wealth. The Lord leverages his will to save us from that sin. To forgive us from that sin. And so as we receive this costly service and laying down of Jesus. Our boast too will become in the Lord. And would we therefore, as James is telling us to pursue downward mobility. With all that we are given. And then if you are materially poor. James would say, boast in your exaltation. Find your anchor point in how God sees you, not how culture sees you, how you are exalted in Christ, and that one day you will stand to inherit his inheritance. James will talk about this more, and he expects the church community to be a place where every need is met. In fact, saying, not not intuiting, but saying that if if you see someone in need and you aren't helping them, you're, you're not a Jesus follower. That's James. So he's not baptizing sort of poverty to keep people in poverty. He wants them to be helped. uh, And wants those who have things to release them. Into helpful ways. But what is James doing? He's reversing the world's story. The poor are not without honor, James says. In Christ they have all honor. So that's what we do. We look at wealth upside down. We also look, I think, number two, beyond wealth. We look through wealth. So we look at it upside down, and then we look at it through it. When we talk about trials in verses 2 through 4, I shared with you this idea from the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. We don't look to trials. We look through trials, which means we are in a story. And so we can connect today's hardships to tomorrow's maturity and growth and, and what God is doing. And so we are encouraged by, by James right off the bat to sort of look, look past or look through or look beyond our, our contemporary hardships so that we can see what God is going to do in the future. We look beyond it. And I think in a similar way, we're being asked in this passage to look through well, into the future chapters ahead. And then behave accordingly today based off what you see. We don't just hold wealth. We look beyond it to two things. I'm going to say the final chapter of our story and then the final chapter of God's story. What do I mean? Well, first, the final chapter of our story. James would tell those with wealth to look through it to the final chapter of their personal story. So look again at verse 10. And the rich rather boasts in his humiliation because like a flower. And then we have this image of fading away in the midst of his pursuits. So James is talking about death here. The rich person will, despite all their activity, despite all their uh, accumulation of stuff, this person will die. That's sobering. But reality, And if it's true, which it is, then it should change how we view our wealth today. We live in light of death. Now, that's not a popular statement. It probably won't sell a ton of books. Uh, but when we do this, what are we doing? We are boasting in our union with Jesus' humble service. And we see wealth in all of its forms as an opportunity to give more and more away because at the end of our life, we want our legacy to be what? They were cross-shaped and served with radical generosity. And that's what James Angling That as we consider our our future, death, how we can't sort of carry all that we accumulate with us. We want to see radical generosity. And then we don't just look beyond wealth to the end of our story. We look beyond wealth to the end of God's story. James is referring in this passage, uh, as well as what follows in verse 12, if you just take a look. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So all of this is urging us to view not just the end of our unique personal story, but really the end uh, of God's story, where he is leading all of humanity in life. God's story, in other words, is going somewhere. And this final chapter includes judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. And so we look at that through our material possessions and adjust accordingly. This is called, and bear with me, this is kind of a big word, but it's an important word. This is called living eschatologically. Can, I, can you say that with me? Living, here we go, eschatologically. Here's why it's important. Here's why it's important. Eschatology is an important word to grasp as a Christian. It simply means final things, or where we are heading in God's story. And Christians always sought to put their ethics in line with their eschatology. In other words, the choices we make today are in line with where our story is heading, or they're not. And we notice the places they're not, and we adjust accordingly. So I like disc golf. Does anybody like disc golf? Okay, I love disc golf. Uh, one of the most important things to do in this game, if you've played it, you know this, is to what? Line up your shot. Otherwise, your frisbee's going on say Road 33 in front of like a car, <laughs> if you play at my, field, at my course. That's what it means to live eschatologically. You line up your throw in view of your target. And the truth is, we all do this, whether we're Jesus followers or not. We live in light of our imagined future. And you may not have given your imagined future much thought, you may not have much clarity, but you have something deep, deep, deep down in. And you are, because we have to make our decisions today based on something. And most of us aren't just kind of, going with the flow a lot of us are making decisions in light of some kind of future imagined future and james would just say populate that imagined future with the story of god and when you do that you will line up your life in certain surprising ways that make total sense when you think about the new heavens and new earth God gives us a lot of previews about the future of his story. And so we adjust. So I'll just give you a a funny example. A few months ago, I went on Craigslist, and I saw a listing for a kid's drum kit. like a small drum kit. This family was getting rid of their kid's drum set. Not because they didn't like it anymore, but because they were moving. And they were looking ahead to their future place, and in their imagined future, they could not see room for it. And so they made a decision today based off of their imagined future. That's that's all James is saying. That's all James is saying. It's what we do with everything we own all the time. We look ahead to the future, and we make sure that we're in line with that future. So James would have us do two things. Allow death. To change your habits today this isn't again popular but in wise cultures it's very very important when we remember our death we will change our habits in some cultures they have this thing called the memento mori it's this amazing kind of thing where it's Latin for remembering your death again dark yes Wise? Yes. Very wise. Why? I mean, some folks, in the, like in the medieval era, they would put human skulls on their, like, work desks. You've probably seen paintings of this before. What's going on? They're just reminding themselves on a daily basis of their death. Maybe we could use James' imagery and put dried petal flowers on our desk. Just to remind us that we're in a fallen world. Death does not have the final word. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And yet it's a reality in this fallen world. And so hoarding for yourself doesn't make sense. Especially when you think of the new heavens and the new earth. Where all who are in Christ share in the inheritance of Jesus. So, generosity towards others, even future generations, makes total sense in life of the story we My office, kind of, is at the Tree of Life Ministry Center, which some of you have been at. Um, It used to be this building, the center of the universe. Did you know this? It used to be the center of the universe. It was where CompuServe had their world headquarters. Does that bring a bell with any of you? (laughs) You should just watch the documentary on the 90s, um, and you'll, you'll find out that it was the center of the universe because CompuServe was harnessing this sort of wild, wild west of the internet and made it accessible to normal people with personal computers. And so kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers, I kid you not, would be video conferenced into this building. Right where I have my office today. But like the flowers in Palestine, what happened? <laughs> it faded out. AOL happened. And then whatever happened after AOL. Um, see, and then this headquarters became a tombstone for like years and years and years so that now it's the office slash storage unit of a sort of small church and, uh, and that's just kind of where it, where it is. And it's a great reminder, I think, of James's point. Don't live for things that fade. And I think number two, allow your hope... To change your habits today. Hope is not wishful thinking. As we like to say here. It is a certain future. And if our certain future is a day. When God will call us to an account. And also make all things new. Then how does that change the way. That we view our wealth today. What is one thing that we could. Just one thing we could do. Now. This week. This month. This season. That is different. In light of this future picture. So we look beyond wealth. And then I think finally, and this will be brief, we look above wealth. So we look at wealth upside down. We look through wealth, beyond it. And then we look above it. We take our eyes up. This is James's countercultural vision of wealth. Beneath what James says in this small two verses here and what he will say down the road in his sermon is a deep, deep, deep assumption. It's like kayaking on an ocean. There's something really deep that is is being assumed here. And it's easy to miss because it's not stated directly. What is it? Well, two things. All we have is the Lord's. And number two, all we need is the Lord. So all we have is the Lord's. Uh, We have a tendency, I think, to detach our spiritual life from our material life, and that's a tragedy It never was meant to be. Uh, But the Bible won't let us do that, and James won't let us do that either. We must connect what's down here to what's up there, to speak spatially. All we have is the Lord's. And this is a radical teaching, I think, in the water we're swimming in in America. The water we swim in is a meritocracy, and the water of radical individualism. So we sort of, all that we have, we earned, and don't tell me what to do. And if we're swimming in that water, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow sometimes. It's truth that it's all throughout Scripture that all that we have is the Lord. So that the radical kind of, the radical sort of teaching in Scripture is that we are fundamentally not owners, but stewards. I mean, the Bible talks about property ownership and all that. But underneath all of that, again, is the deep assumption that, like, God owns the cattle on all those hills. That's that's the Lord's. It's not yours. So we have to ask every day, Lord, how might you have me use this? And number two, all that we have is the Lord's, all that we need is the Lord. This passage moves us to trust that all we really need is the Lord. James seems to say that we are wealthy in Jesus, which again has a, a pastoral direction depending on where you are with material possessions. If you're wealthy in Jesus and are materially poor, there is, a, there is a, um, an encouragement that James brings But it's a profound challenge as we saw if we have material wealth. If our wealth is Jesus and we have material wealth, then there is a trial in itself with just that. Verses two through four apply to us in a very unique way. What is our trial? Well, are we using our wealth to bless others? My neighbor recently gave me a bunch of tomatoes. And this is like the best time of year if you have friends who have gardens. You know what I'm talking about? Because those who have great gardens, their produce overflows. And if you are friends with them, you typically have paper bags with produce in it on your front porch from time to time. And that's amazing. So we have these fresh tomatoes in our kitchen right now. Why? Because it was overflowing. And that's what happens in Christ, okay? Uh, we overflow. So if all we need is the Lord, and we are sort of like a sponge full of the Lord, then everything we have is sort of overflow. And then we ask ourselves, how can we channel this overflow? And that's why James will even doubt the salvation of those who do not give to those in need later in this sermon, Because it must mean, listen, that they don't have Jesus. Because when we have Jesus, our our cup is full. Our, Our sponge is saturated. And that frees us up to be radically generous. We look above our wealth to Jesus. Because we're wealthy in the Lord. We become radically generous with our wealth. Friendship with God, in other words, makes us generous. Friendship with the world, in other words, makes us not. You start to look like who you're friends with. That's James's big point. good news is, is that James understands that we are friends with God and believes and is even inviting us into a deeper friendship. Just think for a second with me as we close. How radically different it would be if you approached not just your life, but even our reading of James. As an invitation from a friend. God is inviting us into a way of life as a friend. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation now, therefore, for those who are in Christ. We are called friends with God. Jesus says his disciples are friends. And so, because we are receiving this word, which can be a challenging word from a friend, we receive it differently, don't we? We receive it as an invitation. Let's view this as a freedom, like the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath, every time I think we hear the word Sabbath, if you, at least I do, I sort of start to clench up. I'm like, oh no. I'm, am I doing Sabbath right? But I always have to change my mind, and I have to remember Jesus' kind words to me as a friend. It's, it's, this is an invitation. This is an invitation. It's not meant to burden you, to free you. Look at, well, upside down. Look at it. Look beyond it and look above it. Lord, would you help us do these three things? Would with James we we have a countercultural posture towards this issue. We ask this in Jesus' his name, who was wealthy, but laid it down. He didn't leverage it for himself, but for the sake of others. We pray this in his name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.